1867, Alfred Nobel. Alfred Nobel was a Swedish chemist who invented dynamite. Um, you probably recognize his name, Nobel, from, he's the namesake for the Nobel Prizes that are given out each year. Um, Alfred Nobel, he, he started that. And due to creating dynamite, Alfred was incredibly wealthy and decided after he died to leave most of his money to fund, uh, he left it in a trust to fund what eventually became the Nobel Prizes. But that was not his original plan. Alfred had a life-altering experience that changed the last 10 years of his life and his, his legacy. You may know this story, but when, uh, when Alfred's brother Ludwig died in 1891, a French newspaper mistakenly thought that Alfred had died, not Ludwig, and so they wrote an obituary for Alfred Nobel while he was still alive. And the title of the obituary said, The Merchant of Death is Dead, and it went on to say that Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. So, so Nobel had an opportunity that very few people ever get in life. He had the opportunity to read his obituary before he died. And what he read horrified him. He realized that he was going to be remembered as the man who created dynamite. He was going to be remembered as the man who created this uh, destructive device, I guess. Not really a device, but he, he created this, and, and he knew he would be remembered for that. And so he decided, after reading that obituary, that he wanted to change his legacy. And so he, without even telling his family, decided to leave almost all of his wealth to create the Nobel Prize. Now, Alfred had a, a moment that caused him to rethink his life and his, his future. It was, it was a life-altering moment for him. And we're in the third week of this series, The Happiness Myth, where we're looking through the book of, uh, of Judges. We're learning from the book of Judges. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 3 today, and we're going to talk about life-altering moments. Life-altering moments. All of us have had some kind of life-changing, life-altering moments in our life. Maybe for some of you, you have lost a tremendous amount of weight. That there came this point where you were like, you know what, I don't want to be this person anymore. And you lost a tremendous amount of weight. Or maybe you started your own company. There was some moment when you said, you know what, I want to start my own company. I want to be my own boss. I want to do it this way. Maybe uh, for some of you, you decided to go back to school at an age that most people don't go back to school. It was something in you, a moment, a thought, a something that was that altered your life. But life-altering moments aren't always positive. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they can be anything but. They can be the opposite of positive. Maybe it was a life-altering moment for you when you or your spouse decided to walk away from, from the marriage. Or maybe it was when your boss decided to end your employment. Maybe that was a life-altering moment. Or maybe it was when you decided to quit fighting an addiction all of us can point back to a moment or a time when life changed either for the better or for, for the worse. It was August the 25th, 2008 for me. Uh, the doctor looked at me 
and holding a pair of scissors asked me the question that all dads get asked who are standing in the delivery room. She looked at me and said, do you want to cut the cord? Do you want to cut the cord, dad? And I had told Andrea before then that I didn't think I was going to be able to, uh, to do that. I was pretty sure that I would be completely grossed out by the whole baby delivery process, okay? And, uh, and so my plan was just to stand as close to Andrea's head as possible and, and not even check out what's going on beneath the curtain, all right? What happens beneath the curtain stays beneath the curtain. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to stay up here, okay? And... Uh, But once Andrea started pushing, don't want to get too gross, but like I just froze. Like I was like a deer staring into headlights. I couldn't not stare. Like I was witnessing the miracle of childbirth here. And I had this mix of like adrenaline and nausea together. I don't know, um, you know, I don't know what exactly it was. But eventually after a few more pushes, I heard the sound of a crying, of a crying baby. And the doctor looked at me. And, and asked, Dad, do you want to cut the cord? Without even hesitating, I grabbed those scissors, I cut that cord. I was, I was a surgeon for like half a second. It was great. <laughs> and after they cleaned Sadie up and they did all the measurements, they handed her to me and they said that she weighed exactly eight pounds. But I got to be honest, holding her, I felt a lot more weight than eight pounds. <laughs> I, I felt the weight of the world. It was incredible. I was a dad. I was a dad, and my life was changed forever. I would never be the same for me. August 25th, 2008 was a life-altering moment. Uh, A lot of us in the room have experienced a life-changing moment when we decided to commit our lives to to Jesus. We asked him to take over our lives. Everything changed for us in that moment, not because all of our problems went away, not because all our problems went away, but because we experienced the hope that only Jesus provides to face life. So today, in Judges chapter 3, we're going to learn, it's going to kind of show us uh, how God brings us to some spiritual life-altering moments. Not just physical life-altering moments, but spiritual life-altering moments. How God brings us to, to those places. Now, if we had time today for everybody to share your story Like if I passed around a mic and you begin to share your story about your spiritual journey or maybe your decision to follow Jesus, while certain details would would be different, there would be a few consistent themes involved in every story. There's actually a a semi-predictable pattern that God uses to bring us to those like fork-in-the-road moments spiritually for our faith. And, and Judges 3 lays that out for us. So just to catch everybody up on the story, in case you haven't been here, or you're not familiar with the, the book of Judges. Uh, Judges is a book about the families who came out of Egypt with Moses. The first generation that, that left Egypt with Moses, they died in the desert. But their kids followed Joshua into the promised land and they set up their homes and they set up their lives. The only problem was that God had given them specific instructions to follow when they began to set up their lives and their communities. And in chapter 1, the first week, we read how the people partially obeyed God. They still served God. They were still, if we want to use this terminology, Christians. But they were not wholeheartedly committed to God. 
They didn't fully believe that God's ways were the best ways to have the best life. In their mind, most of God's ways were good ways, but there were still a few things that were theirs that they were holding on to, and they believed the happiness myth, that, that, that my way is the best way to be happy. And so in chapter two last week, we read about how their kids, so the grandkids of the, of the parents who left Egypt, now the, par- the kids of the parents who half-heartedly served God, we read how in chapter two, those kids had abandoned God and were worshiping the idols that their parents were supposed to destroy, but they, but they didn't. So chapter three picks up a few generations later and things haven't gotten any better. Things have gotten so bad in chapter three that the Bible actually says that God's anger burned toward them. God's anger burned toward them. But we really, we can't be surprised because we have said each week that this is what happens when we choose to live according to the happiness myth. When we choose to believe that our way is the best way to be happy instead of God's way, life's, life just gradually begins to get worse. And it may be two months or it may be two years or it may be 20 years, but eventually the choices or the things that we swore would make us happy make us miserable. That's how it works. But the good news for us is that we have a loving, gracious God who brings us back to him. And that's exactly what he was doing and what he did in chapter three. That even when we've turned our backs on God and given up on him, he never gives up on us. Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 14 says, but God does not just sweep life away. That's great news. Instead, he devises ways. I love that. Like he's strategically devising ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. I love that imagery. That God is in heaven right now as we are slipping away or sliding away or maybe you've been away, that God is up in heaven devising a plan and a way to bring you back to him because he loves you. God does not give up on people. And the Bible says that like sheep, we all go astray, and I've never really worked with any sheep, but based on what I've read, sheep have a tendency to stray. And it's hard to kind of get them going in all the same direction. And as a pastor, I could say that it's hard to get everybody going in the same direction. We all have a tendency to drift. And maybe you're here today, and you've never really committed your life to Christ, or you have, but you found yourself gradually slipping away like Haley described in the video when she was in Lexington. Well, today we're going to find out that God, like an, like an expert fisherman, knows exactly when to reel in his rod. He knows exactly when to pull it in, and he's bringing me and you closer to him. So let's start reading. If you have a Bible, Judges chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 7. Judges 3, verse 7, you don't have a Bible, it's okay. It'll be up on the screen for you. You can kind of read along with us. So here's what it says, Judges chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. We've already talked about that. They abandoned God. They, they worshiped idols. They forgot about the Lord their God, and they served the images of Baal and the Asherah poles. We, they, like, let's just stop at verse 7 for a second because we're going to read the rest of it, but let's just kind of understand what's happening here. They're doing evil in the Lord's sight. They, they've decided no more God, and they're going to worship the images of Baal and these Asherah poles. I actually Googled an image. I, I, 
uploaded it to the computer. I don't know if they got it. If they did, they can throw it up for you. Um, but, but this is the problem throughout the whole book of Judges, that the people are worshiping idols, and they're worshiping like wood statues and wood poles, and they abandon God. And as I say that, like all of us in the room, as I say, okay, they, they, they abandoned God and they started worshiping idols and wooden poles, all of us in the room go, what, really? Like, like they didn't worship God to worship a, a wood statue? That makes no sense at all, right? And I know that none of us in here would ever abandon God to worship a wood statue. I know that. Seems silly. I get that. But we kind of do the same thing a lot. We just replace wooden poles with other things. We trade the all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-faithful God who has come through over and over again in our life for something silly and small and and short-term. And I think we do it the same reason that they did it. The greatest challenge of wholeheartedly following God is keeping faith when we want to see him or feel him or touch him the most, but we can't. We, we serve an invisible God, and that brings some challenges with it. There's no doubt about it. Every day our lives are advertised, our eyes are advertised to over 3,000 times, and they're telling us, these advertisements are telling us that, that things that we can see and feel and touch and taste will make us happy and they'll solve our problems. That's what it's telling us. And I don't care how strong you think your faith is, you let enough of those messages keep coming at you, you gradually begin to drift towards things that you can taste and see and feel and you serve them instead of serve serve God. I, I am not crazy enough to think that many of us would completely abandon God to worship an idol, okay? That is kind of an old school thing back in Bible times. I get that. But we're constantly tempted to worship other gods more than we worship God. And that, as its basic definition, is idol worship. Worshiping something other or more than we would worship God. Committing and prioritizing ourselves to something other than God to provide satisfaction and fulfillment. And maybe as I'm talking today, if you're, in, like, if you're like, well, I don't know if I worship idols, do I worship idols? Here, here's a great way to kind of figure out if something that you love in your life is an idol that you worship. Ask yourself this question. How would you respond if God asked you to give it up? How would you respond if God asked you to give it up? And if you could not respond with yes, if that's what you want, God, then yes, then the chances are it may be an idol in your life because you feel like that it is better to fulfill you and to sustain you than God is. Sometimes idols can be fanatical obsession, right? It's not that the things that we enjoy are bad in and of themselves. It's, it's that we've, we've come to love them too much. It's so easy to do. And the idea of worshiping God with the same fanatical obsession that we worship other things seems incredibly silly, right? Now, the point of the message today is not idol worship because we're going to get to the ways God brings us back in just a second. Um, but I thought it would be a good kind of moment to just pause in the message and examine our lives and our hearts and ask ourselves, do I worship things that I can taste and see and feel more than I worship God? Let me, let me just give you three quick examples. There's more, but let me just give you three quick ones, okay? 
And I chose these three because I think they apply to me in my life, but they may apply to you too. Um, some of us in here, we worship the idol of leather. Leather. You're like, Jason, I don't even own anything leather. Like, no, what I mean is we worship this leather ball that they make basketballs and footballs with. We, we, we determine our schedule weeks and months and quarter years at a time based on them telling us when we need to be available. We spend exorbitant amounts of money to purchase tickets or large TVs or, or whatever it is to, to enjoy those things. We show up hours early. Hours early. The earlier you get there, the better it is. You, you look at the people who show up 45 minutes before game time and you're like, what's wrong with these people? 45 minutes? I've been here four hours. We take off of work. We schedule vacation days. Weather's not a deterrent. It's a badge of honor. You go to the football game and it is pouring down rain. You're wearing your poncho. You're taking pictures saying, I'm a real fan. I'm out here in the rain and the snow and the sleet. It's, it's no big deal. We love it. Our team scores a touchdown. We are high-fiving strangers we've never met in our lives. We're hugging. We're, we're, I mean, it's like we don't care who's around us. We're all on the same team and we are going crazy. A stadium is our sanctuary. And we worship. We can never say we don't know how to worship. We know how to worship. And, and I know it seems silly, and I, I understand that, but like the idea of taking that passion and that drive and that energy and, and applying that towards God, we're like, oh, that's, I mean, that's, I understand why though, because he's invisible and the football team and this, it's not, I get it. I get it, but we stand back and go, okay, what gets, like if I'm, if I'm deciding like what gets my worship, if I'm looking at my life and saying what do I worship, I think it's a valid question to stand back and say, okay, what, what provides more fulfillment and excitement and enjoyment in my life? And do I never miss these things but miss the things or hold out on the things that God's asking me to do? That, that's one, leather. Some of us worship the idol of paper. It's green and it has president's faces on it. And we worship it. And we are convinced that more of the green paper will make us happy and fulfilled. And I understand why. Because money doesn't buy happiness. But, I mean, it buys peace of mind sometimes. And it is nicer to live in a bigger house than a smaller house. And it is nice to drive a car that doesn't break down all the time. And it is nice to do those things. I totally understand. But honestly, we're not really worshiping the paper. We're worshiping the glory. The office is our sanctuary. And our worship is our commitment of 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week to, to, to get more paper, but it's not really about more paper. It's so that when our friends see what we did with the paper, they could maybe envy us. Or maybe we could feel a certain way about what we have accomplished and what we have attained. And 
And so we say, well, I've worked hard. These are my things. This is how I enjoy the fruit of my labor. And I totally get it. Totally get it. I have no problem paying $300 for a new golf club. But if somehow I felt like God was saying, Jason, would you give $300 to help so-and-so? I'd be like, I don't know, God, that's a lot of money, $300. And I understand why. Because money and, and glory, like you can taste it and feel it, and, 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 like it's, and God's invisible. I get it. We have to kind of stop and ask ourselves, like, what if God asked me to give it up? Could I give it up? And if I couldn't, maybe it's an idol. But, you know, sometimes the idols in our lives are much more disguised, more noble than football or money. Sometimes idols can be things that we love and feel like our responsibility, something even spiritual that God would want us to do. Like some of us idolize our children. Their schedules dictate ours. They determine or dictate the terms of how we are going about raising them or what they want. And even if that's not true, we put so much faith and hope and and trust in, in how they make us feel. And all throughout the Bible, several different times, God would show up to a parent and say, hey, I want you to give me your child. What? And I don't think he's saying that today. And I tell you all the time when we read the story of Eli and, and Samuel, and don't drop your kid off at the church, all right? We don't want him. We love him, but we don't want him. Don't drop him off here. I don't think that's what God's saying, but I have been in small groups where the idea of suffering has come up or the idea of a child uh, who died at an early age. And I have heard parents say, if God ever took one of my kids, I just don't know that I could worship a God like that. And when you use, I understand it would be painful. Oh my goodness, I love my children. Like I get it. But if you find yourself saying, I could never worship a God who, fill in the blank, whatever's in that blank may be an idol in your life. Because God is supreme, and whatever he wants, his ways are best. You understand what I'm saying? And so, yeah, they're not wood poles and stuff like that, but there are things in our lives that we say, you know what, I'm not totally abandoning God, but I am going to put more of my trust and more of my hope in these things. Over time, off and on, to different degrees, we wander away from wholehearted commitment to God. And and for some, our time away lasts 20 years, for others it lasts two months, but we drift away from God And he uses three things to bring us back to him. And we see all three in Judges chapter three. So let me just give them to you, all right? Number one, the first thing God uses to bring us back to him is misery. Everybody say misery. Misery. Judges 3, 7 says, Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to King Cushon of Aram, and the Israelites served Cushon for eight years. And then right at the beginning of verse nine, it says, But then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Israel is captured and forced to serve another king. They abandoned God, and God gave them exactly what they wanted, a life without him involved. And it took eight years of misery for Israel to recognize that life was better with God. It did. It took eight years to learn that God's ways really are the best ways. And sometimes it can feel like God is punishing us when bad things happen to us, but make no mistake about it, God allowing us to struggle is a gift and a blessing. Sometimes we just have to learn the hard way that getting what we want is miserable. Sometimes. 
You know, David made an interesting statement in Psalm 51. He said, create in me a clean heart. You've probably heard this verse, oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. So bring back that joy of my salvation and make me, everybody say make me, willing to obey you. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help and they, they cried out to God, sometimes, sometimes God has to make me obey him. Like, not, not as this rude, angry parent, but like, how many people know sometimes you just got to eat the vegetables? You know, sometimes you got you to gotta eat the vegetables, Sadie and Nora. Like, you're going to eat those green meats. Sometimes, sometimes God has to put me in a position to make me obey him. It gets bad enough, dark enough, miserable enough. Sometimes I feel like I have no other choice but to obey God. Uh, Landry Fields was a starter in the NBA for the New York Knicks and the Toronto Raptors until his career was ended uh, by back-to-back-to-back injuries. And he wrote about his experience, and and I want to read this to you because this this is incredibly profound. I want to read what he said. Writing about himself, he said, My dream, my deepest desire, my identity, basketball, were all suddenly in danger It felt like life had been written in dry erase marker and God came and smudged what had been clear before. I've never struggled to believe in God, but I've lived a lot of my life as a person who believes in God but lives as if he doesn't exist. I already had a gospel of my own, the promise that love and wealth are the world's to give to the popular and the gifted. I didn't need to trust God because I already trusted another God, the NBA. Three years ago, Christ slowly started to change all of that God gave me a gift through multiple season-ending injuries. God gifted me faith through my suffering. That's how God works. He never wastes a drop of pain. God dims the light of our faith with suffering so that our hearts embrace a grace that really sustains. Listen to this. Suffering is a time to mourn the loss of that which could never save. In, uh, in small group last week, Joe shared a story about how he came to commit his life to God. And it started because he decided to go to church on Wednesday night before a life-threatening open-heart surgery on Thursday morning. That's how it works sometimes. It was three days in the belly of a well for Jonah. It was a few meals in a pig pen for the prodigal son. God uses misery and trouble and suffering and darkness and pain and sadness sometimes that is God's way of bringing us back to him. Not to torture us, not to punish us. It's a gift. The best thing that ever happened to Jonah was that whale. Sometimes bankruptcy, divorce, being fired, arrested, or publicly humiliated is what it takes for us to consider returning to God. And there are times in our life when God says, okay, okay. If you are so sure that what you want will make you happy, I'm going to let you have it. And it's not until we hit bottom or deal with enough heartache or enough misery that we realize we need to go back to God. And that's what happened to Israel. That's what happened to so many of you. If you were to share your story, you would tell that story because I know because you show up that first week and you, you, you want us to pray and we pray and you, and you tell me your story. You've got a court appointment coming up or you lost your kids in a divorce or something bad has happened in your life and you thought, I need to go to church. And you wouldn't have thought that, but it got dark enough. It got lonely enough. It's not punishment, it's blessing. 
So misery is one way God brings us back. Another way that God brings us back to him is through a person. Everybody say, a person. Verse 9 says, The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. All right? So God almost always uses a person in our journey back to him. He doesn't have to. He could do it on his own, but he usually uses a family member or a friend or a coworker or a sponsor, somebody that through conversations or prayers or being in the right place at the right time is our guide back to God. If you want to call him a rescuer, let's go ahead and do it. Let's call him a rescuer. When I was 15, I met a man named Josh. Uh, he was my, my new youth pastor, and uh, I was raised in church, so I guess you could say I had an affiliation with God, but... Uh, I was not fully committed, wholeheartedly committed to God. I had great parents, but come on, parents, you know that sometimes it takes somebody else saying exactly what you said to your kids for them to listen. And so Josh was repeating a lot of the things that my dad had said to me, but I was like, but Josh is so smart and profound, right? And so, um, and so Josh taught me how to have a relationship with God. He showed me what wholehearted commitment to God looked like. He gave me some of my first opportunities in ministry. I can't imagine my relationship with God without Josh because God used him in my life. I could give you more. I could talk about Stan. I could talk about Paul. I could, I could tell you about these people that when I began to drift away from God, God sent a rescuer into my life to guide me back. He could do it himself, but he always seems to want to use people to accomplish his work. And I can't emphasize enough how important your life is to someone around you right now. Even when it feels like you're not making a difference or no one is listening, you never know the impact that you're making. God wants to use you as a rescuer to bring somebody back to him. I was talking to Eddie two weeks ago, and uh, he told me about the night that he decided to commit his life to God or really wholeheartedly commit. He was another church kid like me, and, and he was 18 years old. And he had been out at a bowling alley, and he, the way he described it was like, I was crazy drunk. I don't even know how I got home. And he got home late that night, and he walked into his house, and he said when he walked into his house, he heard his mom in the other room praying for him by name. And... He realized that while he had been out, his mom had been praying for him. And that night, Eddie decided to give his life to God. God uses people, uses a person. All of us have guides and rescuers in our life. And all of us can be guides and rescuers in someone else's life if we will be aware and present. Don't quit praying. Don't quit showing up. You never know when God is going to create that moment. And their heart is going to be ready to receive Jesus just like your heart was ready to receive Jesus. And you swore you never would be. I love to do that with some of you guys. When you're kind of telling me your story, I'll say, if I'd have told you three years ago you'd be here right now, you know, loving Jesus, and you'd be like, I would have flipped you off and punched you in the face. <laughs> but you never know when the moment's right. You never know when that's going to happen. And that really leads us to our third way. So God uses misery. It's not individual. Sometimes you're miserable and you have a person and this third thing. It's kind of a mixture of all different. But the third thing that God uses to bring us back to him is his spirit. Everybody say his spirit. spirit. Judges 3.10 says the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he became Israel's judge. God's spirit is always working in our lives. And so I don't mean that this, 
I don't mean that his spirit shows up where it had been absent. That's not what I mean. Even if you're here today and you're not somebody who follows Jesus, God's spirit is still working all around you and, and in you. But I do mean that there are moments when God's spirit shows up in a very real, present way. And you can feel him calling you home. You can feel, like, I mean home like here in this world, not death. But you know what I mean? You can feel him reeling you in. You heard Haley's story earlier. She described a moment in a song. Her life was changed forever. It was a moment in a song. She'd heard the song before. She'd been in the church before. But there was something about that moment when God knocked on her heart so strongly, she knew it was time to answer. Some of you have heard my story that I share, but I actually really committed my life to Christ. So like right before I met Josh, I really committed my life to Christ kneeling down at a toilet in a bathroom. I was at a friend's house getting into trouble as a 15-year-old. And all of a sudden, I had to go to the bathroom, and I was standing there using the bathroom, and on top of the toilet was a Bible open to Psalm 51. And in that ridiculous, crazy, odd moment, unplanned by me, God's Spirit showed up and tapped me on the shoulder. I couldn't deny it. I closed the lid to the toilet, got down on one knee, and gave my heart to Jesus in that bathroom. Because His Spirit showed up. Sometimes... Sometimes God uses one of the ways, sometimes he uses all of them, but he has a way of bringing us back to him. Doesn't mean we're forced to accept him. He gives us the choice. But I believe that he will keep allowing us to hit bottom, interacting with a rescuer or feel convicted by his spirit, giving us another chance to wholeheartedly commit to him. I believe that, that he keeps bringing us around and giving us that chance. Maybe today you feel like Jonah. You feel stuck in the belly of a whale. Maybe you're here and you feel like the prodigal son sitting in a messy pig pen. I believe today is one of those moments when God is knocking on your heart, giving you the chance to trade your ways that haven't worked for his ways. Maybe you aren't in a terrible place. But being honest with yourself, you know you, you started to slip away. There's not a wholehearted commitment to God. Can I just challenge you? Don't wait until you're miserable. Don't wait until you hit rock bottom. God's ways are always the best way for the best life. I don't care what anybody else tells you. God's ways are always the best way for the best life. Let's pray.